Well, let's open our Bible, if you will, to Second uh, Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. Uh, we're going to read the first, Lord willing, uh, the first ten verses. Second Timothy chapter two, and I was going to just make this one message, but it looks like over the course of um, last few hours, I think it's going to be wind up being two. But uh, the title of this message is Strong in Grace. Strong in Grace. And we'll again be reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through um, one through 10. Uh, in honor and reverence of the, of the word, reading of the word of God, if you're physically able, will you stand with me right now? <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says, You therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics... He's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. That's the word of the living God. This issue about being strong in grace, you'll see at the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul tells his young son in the faith, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Just a word of background uh, for the writing of this uh, letter, this was written by Paul to Timothy short before, shortly before Paul was martyred. Uh, this was his second imprisonment in a Roman prison. His first imprisonment was five or six years earlier, and he'd been in, in prison there. And uh, he was really under house arrest. He was able to share the gospel and share the gospel to the, much of the Roman guard there, and many people probably came to Christ through his imprisonment. But this one was a lot different. This second imprisonment, he was in a cell, a dingy, dirty cave, basically, with just him in there that was filthy, very dark. And he's writing, knowing that Nero, who's the current emperor, who hated Christians and was severely persecuting him, was probably going to have his head. And uh, he was pretty sure that uh, it wasn't going to be long before he was escorted out of that cell outside the gates of the streets of, uh, of Rome and, and beheaded. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, so um, he was writing to Timothy because Timothy was his, he was, he was his protege. He was his mentor, mentoree. Paul mentored Timothy. Timothy came to faith uh, in Paul's first missionary journey. He led him to faith in Christ. And Timothy was um, called out as a pastor, and he was serving as a pastor at the church at Ephesus at this time. And word had got back to Paul, and there was concern 
that Timothy was in danger of weakening spiritually, and Paul was very concerned about him. Uh, Timothy had some physical ailments that Paul addressed partly in this letter, but he was having a, apparently a hard time. He was given to discouragement. He was given to fear. He was about ready to give up. You get the sense of it in this, in this letter. And this letter was written at the lowest part of probably Paul's ministry, humanly speaking, in prison with death looming at the door. Uh, about to finish the work that God had called him to do. And he writes to encourage this young son of the faith. It was very, very, very important to Paul that he, he take the mantle. I mean, there was a lot at stake. Paul knew that if he didn't stir up the gift, as he talked about in chapter 1 of Timothy, to, to preach the gospel and would have been entrusted in the investment he made in his life, that if Timothy didn't get resurrected in his faith and he wasn't encouraged, the, the, the run, he ran the risk of um, his influence uh, really running into a brick wall over Timothy. And so the church at Ephesus where he pastored was under great, great persecution and he himself was being persecuted. He was probably lonely, he probably was fearful, and also discouraged because he probably knew that there was a good there was a good possibility that he might meet with the same faith as his mentor. You know, to, to follow Paul didn't make you real popular. And Paul, like we've talked about many times before, when he went to a new city, he didn't go check out the hotel, he went to check out the prison. Because that's probably where he was going to land. He was persecuted highly for his faith. And Timothy, in following him, had to be encouraged not to be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of the witness. Don't be ashamed of being persecuted. Don't be ashamed of the confession. Don't be ashamed of what I've taught you. Hang in there. Preach the word. Don't quit. Don't give up. And when he gets to this point right here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son. Now you see kind of the affection that exists between him and Timothy. He regard, Paul didn't have children himself, physical children. He was a single man. But he had spiritual children. And this was probably one of his most favorite and close and intimate children. My son, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're going to follow an outline of what the, we just read, the passage we just read. And in verse 1, we're going to look at the reassessment. And in verse uh, 7, we're going to look at the rewards. In verse 8, we're going to see a reminder. And in verse 10, we're going to look at God's redemptive work. So number 1, the, re, the reassessment. It says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Grace is unmerited favor. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He's speaking to a young son in the faith who's being persecuted for his faith. He's, being, he's dealing with a church full of people that he's trying to guard the truth and make it doctrinally pure so there's attacks from without and there are attacks from within. That's always the way it is. And with all this going on, he said, listen to me. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. And, and, and brothers and sisters, we need to remember this this morning. The reassessment is this. We need to retool the way we see things. And we need to start looking at things through the lens of Scripture. And oftentimes, your life is going to look like that God is not graciously dealing with you when in fact He is. 
you know, when 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 you when you in other words, what he's saying is you need to view the current situation you're under as unmerited favor. Let's think about the situation. Unmerited favor? I'm attacked within at the church, trying to deal with doctrinal issues inside the church. Unmerited favor? That my neck is on the line for the gospel and I could be killed as a result of my profession of faith and certainly because of the reputation that you left behind? And you're saying that I'm experiencing unmerited favor? That's favor? And see, that's how we do. That's what the devil does to tempt us. We go through difficult times. We go through issues. We go through struggles. We go through difficulty and persecution. Or maybe we go through tribulation. We go through discouragement. And we look at that as God's anger, as God's wrath. But if it is result of being in the center of God's will, it is actually God's favor. Because God's favor is expressed in affliction, persecution, and suffering because God's aim is different than mine and yours. Mine and your aim is to kind of make things comfortable here. God's aim is to conform us into the image of His Son. And conforming a man or a woman like you and I who are full of pollution and filth that we still carry over from our, from our life before Christ, to conform us into the image of His Son is no small thing. It's no small matter. And the method that God does and uses and employs to do that is suffering, difficulty, trials, temptation, oppression, pressure within and pressure without. That's exactly what Timothy was going through. And the Apostle Paul writes to him and says, Son, don't misinterpret the moment. God is graciously dealing with you. This is His favor. This is unmerited favor. You're God's son through Christ and he has a plan for you and he's shaping you and he's conforming you into his image. And that's a favor. Otherwise, he would leave you alone. So we need to reassess the way things are going. We need to reassess things that are going on in our life and try to look at them from the perspective of truth. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter 4. Look at 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Somehow or another, we've gotten off base and we've gotten off track. And we've, we've, we've adopted a, a thoroughly unbiblical mindset. And that is that to be in the middle of God's will and to be in the middle of uh, following Christ means that everything is just going to go well and hunky-dory for us. And that means that uh, you know, we're just going to kind of float through the rest of this life with, um, with a, uh, a life that is, is, is absent of pain, absent of fear, Absent uh, being misunderstood, absent being falsely accused, absent persecution, absent, absent, absent loneliness, absent doubt, a absent disillusionment. And every bit of that, every bit of that is part and parcel to the Christian life. It is. And the Apostle Paul's writing him back and he's saying, listen to me now. I'm writing to you. I wish you could see the place where I'm writing from. I'm not writing from a Roman palace. I'm not writing from... Um, uh, from a, uh, a nice hotel. I'm writing from a dingy cave, filthy cave, with no light, with this prospect that in just a few short days I'm going to be beheaded because of the gospel. 
I'm not going to be beheaded because I'm an enemy of the state as far as breaking the law. I'm going to be beheaded because I'm an enemy of the enemy, the prince of the power of the air. I'm going to lose my head because of that. Because the gospel has gone out faithfully through me. I've kept the faith. I've persevered. I've endured. And Timothy, please, please, please hear me now. That's what your future holds. It doesn't, it doesn't hold floating to heaven on a bed of ease, comfort, and pleasure. It holds in it difficulty, doubts, and fears, isolation, and all the other things. But here's what I found to be true. The Apostle Paul says, At my first defense toward the end of this book, no one stood with me but the Lord stood with me. He got down to the point where we sing these songs and we say, we, we affirm these songs. And I was watching this morning how we say that worthy is the Lamb. And the, the conclusion and, and part of the lyrics of what we sang this morning is Jesus Christ is enough. You don't know that Jesus Christ is enough until you get to the point where He's all you have. And when you get to the point where he's all you have, then we can sing with integrity that we've found him to be enough. That's what Apostle Paul found. He found that his first defense, when he was brought before the Roman tribunal to be falsely accused of preaching the gospel, everybody scattered. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, left me. All those in Asia who were with me have abandoned me. Every last one of them. And he doesn't, he's not mad at them. He says, God forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. But let me tell you this. I'm alone. I've been abandoned. I'm disillusioned. But praise God, I've kept the faith. And let me tell you this. Keep on keeping on. Preach the word. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Be strong in grace. This is unmerited favor. God is being good to you, Timothy. He's not punishing you for being outside His will. He's gracing you with suffering for being inside it. Why? Because the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to follow. Hallelujah to His name. Oh man, we're so far too easily satisfied as Christians. You know, we just think that this is it. We live as if this world is it. And this world, friends, is not it. Now look what he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as, so some, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy if you are being reproached for the name of Christ. Listen to this. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he's blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. Now let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter because be strong in grace because sometimes you're not going to think that God's graciously dealing with you when in fact He is. Do you look at that? He said the Spirit... This, now wait a minute. This is not suffering for wrongdoing. We're not to rejoice over that. If we suffer and we do something, if somebody committed a crime as a Christian, they have to suffer the consequences of that crime. We don't glory over that. But we do glory over the fact that if we're in the middle of God's will, and we're trying to be faithful to His call, and we're pursuing Him with all our heart, and trouble comes along with that, we're to rejoice. 
Because look what he says. He said, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He hovers over you. He tabernacles over you. Some of you might be in work situations right now. And you've got people who are driving you crazy. You might have a boss just out to get you. You might have neighbors who are very difficult to get along with. You might have family members who are really causing you problems and have caused contention within your family. There might be a root of bitterness or unforgiveness in your family that you can't get beyond. There could be uh, all kinds of situations that are going on in your life right now. And if you're faithful to Jesus, He puts those in your lap. He gives those to you to be steward over. He gives those over to you to conform you to the image of His Son and also so that His Son may be seen through you in the moment. Have you thought about this? If nobody in your family is going to, be, is going to follow Christ, let it be you. Because if it's not you, who is He going to be seen in? If nobody at work is going to follow Christ and be faithful to Him, let it be you. You're the light of the world. Where do you put light? You put light in dark places where it's most needed. God strategically places you and I and He gives you favor. He graciously deals with you where you are. Be encouraged. It says, listen, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Favor is on you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I was just praying for you all this morning. And I just said, alright Lord, just let things come up in my mind. That, uh, that, that I know that you've asked me or asked this church to pray for and just pop them up. I'm just going to trust you to do it. He started doing it, just left and right. And I was praying for people that I know that you've asked us to pray for who are not saved. Sisters that are not saved. Fathers that are not saved. Wives, husbands that are not saved. Children that are not saved. Stepchildren that are not saved. On and on it goes. I found out that a member of this church yesterday Almost went to blows with somebody because somebody just literally cussed them out to the top of their lungs for nothing that they had done wrong. And I was praying for that situation, saying, Oh Lord, please help our church member to remain faithful and to say, Okay, you hit me on this side, now hit me on that one too. Because I want Jesus to be seen in the way I respond to you. God's working redemptively. It's favor. It's not displeasure. It's favor from God. He's going to reward every bit of it. The Bible says that when the disciples, and you know the story, and we've talked about it before, but when they got in trouble for preaching the gospel and early on in Acts, and they went away rejoicing after they had beat them up as a result of being faithful to the gospel, and the reason they were rejoicing is because the Holy Spirit brought back to their mind and their attention. Rejoice in the day that you're persecuted for your faith in me, because great is your reward. Great is your reward. We need to reassess the way that we look at things. We need to understand that endurance is required in the Christian life. We need to understand that we're not in it for the, long, for the short run. We're in it for the long haul. That we're going to endure to the end. Saving faith endures. Christians endure. They persevere. We get, we get knocked down, but we get back up again. We keep on going. We keep on going because Christ lives in us. He empowers us for holy living and for service. And we endure. As a matter of fact, go back to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you will. Look at the number of times in just these few short messages or verses that he uses the word endure. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship. In verse 10, therefore, 
I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Verse 12, if we what? Endure, we shall also reign with him. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. And that's part really what Connie was saying this morning. As the Lord was saying, trust me, endure. Don't give up. Remain faithful. Keep your eyes on me. Don't quit. Don't get discouraged. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't let it happen. Why don't you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 through 39. Do you believe in God for something? Do you believe in God for somebody around you to be saved? There may be somebody around you who's got a cold and a different walk with Jesus and you're believing and asking God to fan the flame so the embers weren't hot again. Are you asking God for salvation of somebody who you know from a distance or maybe close at hand? Are you believing God that God's going to resurrect a ministry that's gone flat and start to work in somebody's life who you've seen very little evidence of his activity in? Are you believing for people that are near and dear to you? Are you believing for yourself that God's promised you some things that you haven't yet seen come to fulfillment? You're walking in discouragement and fear. Listen to what the Lord would say to you this morning. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The time lag between doing the will of God and receiving the promise is where Satan will get you. It's right there. Now we don't know what time that is. You don't know how long that's going to stretch. And God will stretch it as long as it needs to be stretched. If it needs to be stretched longer for you to be more conformed to the image of His Son, He'll stretch it longer. He's not doing that to punish you. He's doing that to show Himself to you. He's doing that to show Himself faithful to you. He's doing that to give you long-haul faith. He's doing that so you know Him. He's doing that so that you're anchored, not by what He can do for you, but, but just by knowing Him. But that difference between receiving the promise or, or doing the will of God and receiving the promise, there's need of endurance in that zone. And he says this, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. He said, endure. Why endure? Why endure? Let's go back to 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. He uses three analogies here. He uses a soldier, he uses an athlete, and he uses a farmer. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Let's look at it, what he says about it. Verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. You can take the soldier, you can take the athlete, you can take the farmer. And there's one thing that is in common in all three of them. Rewards don't come until the end. The rewards don't come until the end. You see, the battle rages. You get enlisted. It's difficult. It's hard. It requires endurance. It requires persistence. It requires faith. 
It requires trust. It requires a renunciation of self. It requires turning our back on this world. It, it means to the cross before us and the world behind us, I've decided to follow Jesus. And the soldier enlists and he perseveres. But the spoils don't come until the battle's over. If anyone competes in athletics, he works hard and tries to sharpen his skill, make sure he's the best at what he can be, because little things make big differences when you're in an actual race. One little turn of the shoulder as a swimmer means the difference between winning and losing. Just a little bit of effort off the board, trying to dive out just a little bit further and stretch yourself makes a difference. As a runner, trying to be unencumbered and try to be uh, as thin and as robust and trained as possible. All of these things that go on behind the scenes that nobody gets to see until race day. But the reward doesn't come until the end. And a hard-working farmer, probably the best example of all of those. He labors, plows, toils, sows, tends, prays, trusts God, works over and over again. The word hard-working from the Greek from which it stands, from which it's translated, means working to the point of exhaustion. That's what that word means. He's the first to partake of the crops, but when he partakes of the crop, the reward is the last thing to come. The rewards don't come until the end. What is the reward? Look at First Timothy four. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4. Just turn a couple pages over. 2 Timothy 4. The Apostle Paul, knowing that death was, physical death was not far off like we talked about, said this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know what the reward is? The reward is not the crown of righteousness. There are several crowns written and talked about in the scripture. Look at, look at it carefully. He said, there's laid up a reward, a crown of righteousness, that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give him on that day. But what was the motivation for seeking the reward? Those who love his appearing. The exceedingly great reward is Jesus himself. To live and worship and serve in his presence forever. And that makes every rat hole and every prison cave and every stormy night and every shipwreck and every lonely time of isolation and fear worth it all. See, he's the reward. All those who love is appearing. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside a believer and has his way Inside the believer, you're satisfied with nothing less than Jesus himself. You want to spend time with him. You want to worship him. You want to love on him. Receive his love and then give it back to him. And let it flow out to other people. Because your exceeding great reward is not rewards. 
It's the reward giver. It's Him. All those who've loved His appearing. All those who've loved communion with Him. All those who've longed to be in His presence. Where not only have we been, the penalty of our sins has been dealt with. The power it has to rule over us has been dealt with. But we've been delivered from its presence. Hallelujah. 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 It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. I'll assure you it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So look at it. We've got to reassess things like it says in verse 1. We've got to stop misinterpreting God's gracious dealings with us and understand that difficulty in the Christian life is not unusual. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's um, the M.O. of the Christian life. It's standard operating procedure. Difficulty, affliction, persecution, pain, loneliness, isolation, and fear. Every last one of those things is the M.O. of the Christian life. But yet in all of them, it's God's gracious favor. Timothy, be strong in grace. Dig deep from the grace well. Meditate, like Nancy was talking about on those verses. Meditate and draw from that well to, lit, to drink of the gracious dealings of your great God with you. Because what you're going through right now is unmerited favor. And he wasn't writing that letter from heaven. He was writing that letter from a spot where he was in worse shape than Timothy. And he viewed the position he was in to be unmerited favor. God, I can't believe that you would let me, of all people, experience this. Because in experiencing this, I'm experiencing you. Hallelujah. 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 That's what it means to know him. That's not, that's not what it means to know about him. That's what it means to know him. That's what will make the mundane special. That's what will take persecution and turn it into praise. That was, that's what will take fear and turn it into boldness. That's what it will take because it's Christ Himself. The Christian life is not living for Christ. The Christian life is not eternal life. The Christian life is Jesus. Hallelujah to His name. So we have to reassess the way we're thinking in verse 1. With the rewards in verse 7 and following... It says, listen, consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding. What's the understanding you needed? We'll go over the rest of it in the second part of the message. The understanding you needed right now and following our outline is rewards don't come until the end, Timothy. They don't come until the end. In the meantime, does God grace you with favor? Does He with you? Absolutely. But let me tell you something right now. When you're in His, when you're in his presence, every bit of that is going to fade away. It's like a woman who has a child and you go through the birthing. I was there when all four of our children were born and I didn't think I could take it, but it's different when it's your children. And all of a sudden I got a good, I, I thought I had a weak nerve, but I didn't have one anymore. And I watched all that and I was right there cutting the cord and doing all that stuff and all that and having fun and Jill was suffering and wasn't having fun. But it's amazing how that, you know, it's really true that, the, the, you know, all the pain and anguish that the woman goes through in childbirth and the labor pains and they get closer and closer together and the contractions, all you ladies who've had babies know and how intense the pain is. And the very moment, it's so true, the very moment that little baby comes out, you forget every last bit of that. It's like it never happened. Isn't that true, ladies? It's like, who cares? And then, it, and then the baby comes out, and all of a sudden, it's not like, don't, don't get mad at me now. Don't give me letters about that. I know that. But let me tell you this. The baby comes out, and all of a sudden, you start rejoicing. And that's the way it's going to be like when we're hurled into the presence of our Lord. Every bit of the doubt, every bit of the fear, every bit of the persecution, every bit of the misunderstanding, is going to be as if it never happened because we'll be seeing face to face. 
We need to look at the reminder. We saw the reassessment in verse 1. We see the uh, rewards in verse 7. Consider well. Think this through, Timothy. And in verse 8, we need we see the reminder. It's the reminder of who we serve and who we're empowered by. Look at what he said. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Hallelujah. 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 He's saying, listen to this. Remember the identity of your Savior. He's God who became man. He's Jesus Christ. He's the anointed one. He's God the Son. And He came down here, Ray, and He took upon human flesh. He was born of the seed of David according to man. But He's God and He's man at the same time. Be comforted in the fact that He's God because you are overcomers because He overcame be comforted in the fact that He's God and because He said He was offered up for our transgressions but raised for our justification that His death, His burial, and His resurrection were more than enough for you. Be confident that He is the final judge. And the Bible says in John chapter 5 that all judgment has been committed to the Son that He who comes to the Son through the power and the wooing of the Holy Spirit is made free and does not come into condemnation but has been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Be confident that He's God because He made good on His promises. Be confident that God, that He's sovereign, that He's in control, that He's trustworthy. Hallelujah! Jesus Christ is God. And then He says, the next thing He says was, but He was also born of the seed of David. Here's the part. He says, listen. Here's the deal, Timothy. You're serving God. You're not serving a God claimer. You're not serving another God. You're serving the God. There's only one. He was the only one around when the vote was given. And he voted and said, I'm God. That's it. I'm God. You're serving the sovereign one. But let me tell you this. He became a man. Now what's the comforting part about that is this? Let me tell you the comforting part about this. This is so cool about Jesus. The Bible says He came down here and He took upon human flesh. He's acquainted with every one of your weaknesses. Every time you have doubt and fear of your children, Jesus knows about that. Every time that you have doubt and fear about the future, He knows about that. Every time you have hurt and pain because maybe other people have betrayed you or turned their back on you or broken promises. Every time that the closest people, the people who are closest to you, and maybe the people on this earth that you should have placed and had right to make a case, I could place total trust in that person, and that person has betrayed you, then when you take that to Jesus, did you know He can look you in the face with tender eyes and say, Son, daughter, I understand. I invested my life in 12 men. I gave them everything I had to give them. One of them betrayed me, and every one of them denied me and pursued me. I understand what that's like. I understand what it means to be hurt by other people. I know exactly what that's like. And you can rest and take that. And he sympathetically takes that to the Father. The Bible says he was he came down here to be acquainted with our weaknesses so that he could empathize with them. And when he talks to the Father and intercedes for you, it's in an understanding, compassionate way. He doesn't go to the Father and say, God straighten up Mark because he's weak. He doesn't get it. He says, no, you what, Lord? Mark's going through a difficult time right now. And I remember on earth, I went through the same thing. And I'm interceding on his behalf that his faith fail not. That you encourage him. Lift him up. Send a message to him, maybe through somebody else, to lift up the shoulders that have hung limp. Or maybe he's crippled right now, spiritually speaking. Raise him back up, Lord. Have compassion on him. Remember your promises. Call to him to remembrance. You know what the Father does? He responds. 
because he's totally pleased with his son. And he responds. When Jesus Christ prays something, the answer is yes every single time. He said, you be comforted of the fact he's God, but he came as a seed of David. And Timothy, he knows what you're going through. And he is sympathetically, compassionately identifying with what you're going through. And he is praying for you. Hallelujah. What a great God we serve. So see, we need to reassess things and start viewing them through the lens of grace, unmerited favor. We need to look and realize the rewards from verse 7 don't come till the end. And we need a reminder of who we serve and who we're empowered by. When I, when I try, I fail. But when I trust, He succeeds. He succeeds, Connie, not me. Amen. He grants me His success. That's what it means to trust Him. Remember who you serve. Remember who your Lord is. Don't you forget it and don't let the devil talk you out of it. And then we need to look at His redemptive work. Look in verse 10. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal suffering. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever read in the Scriptures where it says, the Apostle Paul said, we make up what is lacking in the suffering of Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that? The Apostle Paul, what he's saying here is, is I'm enduring all of these things because God's using my suffering in order to work through me to bring about the salvation of others. When it says in the Scriptures that we make up what is lacking in the suffering of Jesus Christ, it does not mean that we make up for His suffering redemptively. It doesn't mean that there's something that needs to be added to his death in order to purchase men and women and boys and girls for salvation. It does not mean that. When he said on the cross, it is finished, that meant it is finished. When God raised his son from the dead and said, I, I'm, I, my justice and my righteousness and my judgment against sin has been satisfied and appeased through the gift of my son and his sacrifice for the ungodly like Lindsay Lewis, I'm satisfied that was enough. We don't do anything to add to that. But as long as the body of Christ is on this earth and He lives inside you, He calls upon His bride to suffer. And He works through suffering to show others His redemptive nature, His redemptive activity, and His redemptive call, and the love that motivated it so that they can get saved. Let me ask you a question. If, just, if you just go through needless suffering and needless difficulty as a Christian, and think that God's just up in heaven just loves to just move us around like chess pieces and kind of kind of is amused by uh, putting us in difficult situations or seeing how much we can take, you've missed the point. That's not what God's like. God does all of that to conform us in the image of His Son and put us in lives of other people who desperately need to know Him so that they have a chance to see who He really is. And maybe they might get saved too. My brother who's going through the difficult time and got cussed out by somebody yesterday. What a wonderful opportunity and reminder daily. This guy's a neighbor. That, that There's a man right there who still speaks to me and who's still nice to me and still prays for me even though I cussed him out within a half inch of his life yesterday. What's up with him? And that suffering that took place yesterday, God wants to work through it redemptively. Is what it says? Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not a 
pawn in God's hands that He's moving around just for His fun. I'm strategically placed by God where I am. He lets things into my life and lets them happen so He can work redemptively through me to show off His Son. Hallelujah. <laughs> so He's working redemptively through it. So, number one, we need to reassess. This is God's grace on young Timothy's life and believer. If you're suffering, you're going through family difficulty or pain or whatever, and it's a result of being in the middle of God's will, God's graciously dealing with you. Don't you forget it. He's still graciously dealing with you. Just as surely as He graciously saved you, He's graced you with this. What does He want to do? First of all, He wants to show you to hang in there and show Himself faithful to you even when you don't feel or even see Him sometimes because the rewards don't come until the end. And let me tell you this too. Who is the reward? It's none other than Him, Himself. The ones who love is appearing. And then, let's just give you a gentle reminder of who it is you serve. He's the God of glory. And He became a man. He identifies with everything you're going through right now. And He loves you. And would He wound you? And He's working redemptively through your situation. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Listen to this question. Listen to this question. Would He wound you, a believer who is sealed for eternity? Listen, you could not be lost if you tried to. If you're really saved and you've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's an eternal transaction. You're a son or daughter of the living God. The Bible says when you're born again of the Spirit of God, it says in Psalm 37 that He preserves His saints forever. If you're sealed and you're taken care of, and at this moment, if, if, the, if the clock didn't make it till 12 o'clock, and you, were, you suddenly collapsed and died in this service, the Bible says to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present with the Lord. You're taken care of. Would He wound you? Would He afflict you? Would He let you get cussed out to the nth degree so that He could work through you to save somebody who does not have that kind of assurance? The answer is yes. He would do that. And you know what? That's nothing but grace. That's why when we've studied, would He put you in a work environment where people are difficult to deal with and you've been mistreated or unfairly treated or falsely accused and there's nothing you can do about it? Would He put you in a difficult marriage and call you to persevere in the middle of the difficulty? Would He put you in a family situation where there's uh, unforgiveness and angst and fear just so He could work through your redemptive and Christ-like character to bring about the redemption of others. Not that you would save them, but at least when they stand on the throne and they stand in judgment, they'll know, I've seen you, Lord. I saw you through Ray Quinn. And that guy at work, who I treated like a jerk, and I could not stand his profession in you, but he still loved me nonetheless. I saw you in him. Are we going to pick up our toys and pout and stick out our nose and say, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. Let me tell you what wasn't fair. That was not fair. The one who died there did not die for his own sin. He died for yours and ours. You see, 
When you begin to die to yourself, people begin to get to see Jesus in you. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of those who have already been called out for salvation, chosen to Him before the foundation of the world, so that through my life, witness, and testimony, they get to see Jesus.